International Fluid Academy and Intensive Care State-of-the-Art Conference, both been in the last couple of weeks. Let's get some insights. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the uh, Critical Care Practice. I'm determined to call it the Intensive Care Society podcast, the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. Um, I'm Jonathan Downham, for those of you that don't know me. And once again, I'm joined by uh, Johnny Wilkinson, who is one of my esteemed colleagues, works over in Northampton. And we're very kindly joined by David Linus as well, who uh, some of you might know um, from the internet as uh, propathology.com. And David Linus started his website with very, very useful infographics, which I picked up on Twitter quite quickly and started banging out there. And um, if you want to go and look at those, I highly recommend it at propathology.com. I know David has got a new project going as well with Johnny, as well as a podcast that I've seen is being released or has been released, but we'll talk about that in a little while. In the meantime, Johnny is sitting on the other end and he's going to talk to us and he's going to talk to David and we're going to exchange some views about the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference and presumably something about the International Fluid Academy, which unfortunately I couldn't make because I managed to injure my knee and was having surgery at the time. So Johnny, away you go. Doing, folks, Dave, are you all right there? Oh yes, I am always happy to join these podcasts. I love them. So um, it's always good to be joined by two Johnnies as well. So it's, right. <laughs> it keeps you the famous ranks of the two Johnnies. Lucky you. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, John, you were actually at this meeting, so you've got direct insight. Now, I've just got to point out uh, from the outset that I was not at the meeting. I was one of these lurkers following it on Twitter, but um, in doing so. Uh, kind of, sort of in combo with Dave. Just to be clear, Johnny, this is the Intensive Care Society it meeting is, we're talking yes. about now. This is now, State of we? the Art yeah. uh, 2017. I yeah. couldn't get too gutted. Um, but Dave and I sort of um, kind of collaborated as we are doing uh, regularly at the moment with both of our sites. Uh, we sort of collaborated together to sort of put out some some nice flashy tweets along with Aoife Abbey, who I'll mention in a moment. Dave will undoubtedly have a lot to say about her as well. So what I did was try to run through the meeting uh, and produce more of an infographic side of things. Very much learn from from the lovely Dave Linus, I have to say, because he put me onto Pablo Buffer, which is kind of how I've managed to do these, but it is a fabulous way to do things. So I thought we'd just run through that very quickly. And if you look at the... So, John, you've got the site loaded up, I believe, on screen. So I'm just going to run through them um, and hopefully we'll yep. get a rough flavour of what the meeting was about. So starting at the top, we've got some very basic stuff on a good old anaphylaxis, which is... Always rearing its ugly head. I don't know if you've had any cases, Dave, but I've certainly had a few in my inverted commas esteemed career in anaesthesia and ITU so far. They've all been to muscle relaxants, funnily enough. So um, I just put this one out, just saying simply that uh, remember skin signs may be absent in anaphylaxis or appear after hypotension, so don't be fooled. Now, I've got to say in every case I've had of six, so there's quite a few now, and I think John and I, we've talked about this before on previous podcasts as well. Every single one of those bar one, there was no skin size, there was no rash, there was nothing. It was just hypotension. Somebody said they felt dreadful at induction. That was one of them. So don't be fooled by your textbook presentations of anaphylaxis because they don't often happen, I have to say. So don't be sitting there thinking, ah, oh, there's no rash. Uh, there's no need to rush for the adrenaline. But if there's no rash, there may be a need to rush. So... I think that's the key message here, and that was that infographic there. So a bit on anaphylaxis on that one. The next one was a little bit of a, a 
more of a scare tactic thing and I have put a spelling mistake in this you'll notice but it makes it more amusing I guess uh, nothing that you would ever do Dave but I tend to put spelling oh, errors out there and all sorts of stuff <laughs> Antib- antibiotic resistance will dominate it's supposed to say all of our lives in the coming decade now this worries me immensely because on the ICU uh, we seem to have repeated problems with resistant bugs and you'll hear people saying you know I've had this chest infection it's just not shifting goes on for weeks and months and it's lingering around. Now, I wonder whether this is something to do with the resistant spectrum of uh, bugs we're getting out there. Uh, do you have that problem over your neck of the woods, Dave, at all in the unit? Yeah, totally. And I think um, it's actually something that's coming in, in to play quite a bit in, in our thought processes in Northern Ireland whenever we're looking at resistance. So a lot of our hospitals actually do different things. So it depends on trust. We have a number of trusts in Northern Ireland. I think we have uh, four um, trusts in Northern Ireland. And they all have different antibiotic policies. Uh, resistance is, is high on our mind. We have uh, quite a lot of input from our consultant microbiologists in ICU who do ward rounds and stuff. And this is actually a topic that came up at uh, IFAD as well, wasn't it, Johnny, really? Yeah, there was quite a lot said about it. It, it is, I think it's a worrying area for, for all of us, to be honest. And Lost a bit, chaps. If there's a bit of a gap here, we lost a bit of our sound there. So apologies, that was my fault, I think. So this, um, yeah, I was just talking about the War of the Worlds and, uh, you know, these aliens that came from Mars being wiped out by the pathogens on Earth, ultimately. I actually worry this is going to happen to us, a rather apocalyptic view of things. But you know, it is quite a worry. All these resistant bugs out there are sort of getting the better of us. And, it, and I think it's only going to get worse, the amount of antibiotics are splashing around. And hence the formation of stewardships within trusts. I think they're an important thing. So that was just a bit of a scare infogram on that. The next one, difficult and very contentious issue is the heme-onc patients who are coming to ICUs uh, with uh, very uh, acute illnesses and with often very bleak prognoses I have to say and it's difficult to be able to gauge whether you should escalate to the top or whether you should just seal in your care uh, but what's going on at the moment is our hemonc uh, guys are getting cleverer and cleverer with the anti-cancer therapies they're coming up with but I think in doing so we're seeing more and more sick patients coming up who are on the receiving end of a pneumonitis or indeed a tumor lysis syndrome as a result of these So this infogram was supposed to represent the fact that a lot of our units probably aren't going to be big enough to cope with the influx of these patients if we carry on getting more advanced with our therapies. So the good old Jaws phrase of you're going to need a bigger boat came to mind here. And this has sort of been echoed by a few other people. You have to be careful what you say because I don't want to go tarring the wrong brush and saying to everybody, you know, be careful with your hemong patients, don't admit them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that often they have a bleak prognosis and we need to be very careful and this is where end-of-life conversations often come in. So we need a bigger boat, we need bigger ICUs, and I think all of us could say that probably. I think Warwick's a big unit, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, intensive care? No, not especially. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, crikey. I assumed it was a bit bigger. I presume it's the COV side, the university side, that's got a new row and everything else. Yeah, that's that's the really big And I think David's really unit's only, with the one he's on at the moment, it's only a fairly small one as well, isn't it? Yeah, so my unit is seven. We take a lot. We do a lot of hepatobiliary surgery in my specific unit, but in another one of the Belfast hospitals, it is a very <clears throat> hemonk ICU, very, 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 because it is the. It's also the cancer center hospital that yeah. we have, and I think what you said is exactly right. It is uh, with all these things and all of these new treatments. It's actually the uncertainty which is growing because if you can say, well, this new treatment may actually give this person, you know 
extra months or extra years you know it's very hard to actually put you know ceilings of care on 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 acute illness whenever you have the potential it's the possibility that um you know it's not going to be the end of the road for them and that's where all the problems are coming in it's the uncertainty i think i think it is and also the the oncologists understandably will always sell you the best picture to get their patients sorted out um but again moving down to the next infogram one in five icu patients have cancer and these are these are staggering figures, actually, because, you know, you do get the patients who just seem to have refractory multi-organ failure with whatever you do. And some of those guys are going to have an underlying cancer that's never been picked up before. So that's quite a scary stat. And it may also explain why lots of our patients pass away on us and there wasn't anything more we could do because, of course, not all of them will get a PM and they won't find out where the primary was if there was one. So I think this is um, fairly scary stuff we're seeing. And that was that infogram which represents that. Moving on down, cardiogenic shock. I think this one really is just to highlight that it is a complex state. And this is, for me, why the usage of POCUS and high acuity echo, if you can manage to do that, and every, you know, everyone who waves a program around is not necessarily an expert, and Adrian Wong would tell you that. But this is just giving you a brief definition of what um, cardiogenic shock is there. So if you, you can see that one moving moving through the, through the pictures. Next one, get your cardiologist down to ITU, sometimes hard, not always, but sometimes. If you can say, oh, I've got an ejection fraction of uh, less than or greater than 25%, whatever it is, in an akinetic septum, you're sort of starting to talk their language a bit more. So I think having that ability and that within your armory is often quite helpful to get your good old friendly cardiologist down. So that's the infogram there you'll see with an echo on. The next one, if you need a CT with contrast, just do it. This was a huge area of contention, paper after paper. Uh, everyone's trying to prophylax against it, giving cysteine to people, all sorts of different things, fluid loading them, fluid optimizing them. Nobody's really found anything that makes a difference. So the fact is, Nothing does. So if you need a CT, you're desperate for it and you can justify if the test is going to change your management, just go and do it. And I think this came from one of uh, Aoife's lovely, you know, infographic note representations. And I think everyone's been getting the knickers in a twist over the use of contrast. Let's just get it done. If you need the scan desperately, don't fret about it causing acute kidney injury. Chances are your patients are sick enough anyway. You're not going to make them much worse. And of course, you say to the radiologist, well, we're going to spin them on the filter. We'll probably have got rid of it anyway. So we do have lots of things in our armory and scope against the phrase that, uh, you know, contrast is going to scupper your kidneys entirely on ICU. And I think as you, you, you were there, John, but you probably heard loads about this when you were there, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's something that started to emerge last year as well. And I think um, I may get into trouble for saying this, but um, the people that seem to have the biggest problem with it are the radiographers. Yeah. When if yeah. you go there, they get quite uptight about it, even though, like you say, you reassure them that you're not concerned and you can do something about it should it be an issue. Um, so maybe the message needs to go via the radiology department, but um, they can be tender little souls sometimes. So. Well, hey, maybe we should get this one posterized and I'll pop it up in our um, CT scan. <laughs> see what, uh, what happens I'll get darts thrown at it or um, they'll actually have a look and go Ooh, maybe maybe we are being a bit fretty about this so the next one down here is all about um, the fact that on ICU we're often considered the lifesavers in the hospital you know we, we're approached when all else has failed etc 
but more and more so, and again, going back up to the list of the hemong patient who comes up, sometimes uh, it is all about speaking to families and preparing the patient that the fact that they're not going to get better and it's actually end-of-life care. And I think something that's very difficult for the trainees coming through the unit more and more so these days is the fact that you're not really prepared to have end-of-life conversations, the fact that this is going to be more and more, take up more and more of the workload on the unit. Um Someone like David, who I've got to know very recently, you're very good with your words, I've noticed. You're very good at explaining things. You're very good at getting on the level with people. I think some people may struggle with this part, and that's something you're not going to be prepared for necessarily. But have you found that in your training, you're getting to sit with consultants and you're deciding what the right recipe is for this? Yeah, I mean... Um, I, I think it it depends where you work and I think it depends on your expectations of what your career is going to be like and I think if you go into intensive care medicine or or anaesthetics or something like that with the expectation that you're just going to be this you know superhero with you know their pants on on top of their jeans you know who just charges around doing all these life-saving things and it works all the time you're going to be bitterly disappointed and actually I think well, particularly in my ICU um, you know there are very hard conversations that need to be had quite frequently because the nature of hypothesis Audibility, yeah. you know, patients and then hemonk if you're working in a hemonk icu very similar these patients are extremely sick so i think it depends and then if you work in another unit where there's high turnover you probably don't get that exposure but definitely during my um journey i have had good opportunities to go and speak to families by myself um at all all times of the day and night. I think that's good because I think um, if you don't give your trainees the opportunity to go and A, listen, come and listen, and B, go off and try it out for themselves to speak to some families, you're never going to learn, are you? And you suddenly get thrown in at the deep end with this when you get your CCT or whatever it's called. You have to practice. You have to practice it because it's not something that comes naturally. You don't spend your social hours talking you know, to people in very nice language about how their loved one is actually slowly passing away in front of them and how to deal with the expectation of ICU and limit and, and dealing with those expectations as well. Right. It's very hard and people are very angry. I think in ICU, though, on the other side of this, we do have, um, we have a benefit of being usually usually families are very happy their relative or their loved one is in ICU they see the the excellent standard of nursing care etc etc so they're usually quite satisfied that all the right things are being done so maybe it's a, it is slightly easier than having those conversations on, on a ward potentially but no. I think so I think <clears throat> just to bring John into this as a critical care practitioner do you get the chance to do a lot of this to have the end yeah. of life conversation, um, yes, actually, um, probably more so now that um, I'm probably one of the more experienced critical care practitioners. In that, um, I think there needs to be a level of trust between myself and the clinician that I'll deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. Um, more often than not, I, I, I am with a clinician and we work it between us, yeah. but. I think like everybody, I have sat there as an interested observer and sometimes thought to myself, oh, my God, please, can you either get to the point and use the word dying or death um, or, or let somebody else do it? Because I, I do think and this is not just doctors, this is nurses as well. I've seen do it who um, are not skilled at being brave enough to um address the elephant in the room uh, and to be honest that often causes more difficulties than anything in that you are providing the relatives 
with unrealistic expectations. I think if you're going to go into a room and have that conversation, you need to use the proper word and not use words that people might misinterpret. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, <clears throat> I'm feeling some more infograms coming from this podcast alone because people are people are making some quite relevant points on a lot of this stuff. It's a big issue, this, and it needs to be done properly, I think, but... It only comes on. And I think it's something. I think, think it's something that we, as um, intensive care people, need to stop railing against. I think there's an awful lot of, you know, oh, we have, always have to give the bad news. We always have to go and make the final decisions. Whilst that's still the case, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, I think we need to just make more effort to become better yeah. at it and Agreed. stop trying to. Yes, I do also know. think these conversations should start um, sometimes on a ward level with medical teams and surgical teams as well yes. because quite often it is just as you said you know um, um jonathan it is a kind of a thing like oh i see you will deal with it because they're the people who deal with this i think that's a highly relevant point well made actually david because that that is quite often the case you'll find that no escalation and or de-escalation plan tep dnar plan has been made on the ward at all sometimes you know you may be lucky enough if your colleagues have been good enough to do so it makes life a hell of a lot easier from most importantly, the patient, then the family, then yourselves. So, so there we go. Big topic. I'm sure we could ramble on about that forever because it's uh, a big bone of contention quite often. Next one's Echo on ICU. Um, this was me, I believe, and I think David put something about this out at IFAD as well. Why look at the exhaust pipes when you can see the engine? So this is my take on if you have the ability to use Echo, perhaps look at the heart, see how the filling state of the patient actually is visually. Uh, and dynamically, rather than going on some of these uh, more fudgy machines that give you a random number, such as Lidco et, et al., you know. And do you know the interesting thing from the um, conference, Johnny, was that this was probably one of the uh, most poorly attended um, sessions of the whole what conference. What was the poker session? Uh, Yes, which I found rather surprising. I am, I am actually shocked by that. So that is amazing. <laughs> that's very strange, isn't it? Because it seems to be, maybe it's just within our world, it's a huge thing, but maybe in other people's worlds, it's not as big a thing. And same with uh, social media and medicine too. Maybe we're just in our echo. But, but, but the, the, the IFAD was overwhelmed mm, with it, we wasn't it? There was a huge yeah. amount of interest, I believe. Now, I don't think the Europeans are... Uh, leaps and bounds behind us with this are they so i did wonder why um, um we had a room that was probably one third full with some very good speakers in there you know uh, Marcus Peck was there, for example. Yeah, they did actually find at the ifad conference that there was a lot of advanced sessions planned and adrian wong was you know was lamenting the fact that actually it was it was vastly outnumbered by beginners, which is a fantastic thing, you know, for a workshop. However, it was beginners. And I, just anecdotally, I do not think that most people who work in anesthesia and critical care, most people use ultrasound at all. It, just in my in my personal experience, you've got no, brilliant people right. I think right, actually. Actually. who do, but yeah. they don't use it. And there are a handful of people who are seen as enthusiasts and the rest and go, right, well, they can do it because they're very into it, but I, I don't do it. I and think this they, is they, a they very important it. point, David, you've, you've made there. Now, it could could be to do with your level of training, uh, as in where you are in your career, but I think you are correct because our department of, oh crikey, 40 plus more anaesthetists, there's only a handful of us that actually do this. You obviously have the regional anaesthetist, me being one of those, uh, anything ultrasound, I'm there, sadly, um, 
but you have the regional anaesthetists, then you have the people who can do echo. I don't think there's many within our cohort of general anaesthetists who perform echo for any reason. And why would they, to a degree? Uh, for us on ICU, a bit more important, but there's still only a few of us on our unit who do it. So maybe, Jonathan, this is a representation of the UK as a whole. I don't know. And I think that's very interesting. I'm really glad we talked about this because this, this makes some interesting fodder for later uh, posts and so forth. So there we go. Maybe not everyone's interested in POCUS, uh, interested in what the engine's doing, but I certainly am. And that was my justification as to why. And I'm not saying everyone should know how to do ECHO and must do it by any stretch. And perhaps you're right, David, perhaps a handful of people is enough. I don't know. So moving on, smoking, huge thing. Uh, whenever I have to anesthetize a patient who's a heavy smoker, they've got the uh, tar-stained fingers, not nicotine-staining, guys, tar-staining. Big mistake, though, it's often made. Uh, I sort of get a feeling of dread because you get often problems with induction, problems with emergence, and then you get, of course, post-op pulmonary complications. And this was Nitin Aurora who asked for this to be retweeted, which was done in Infogram. And this has been retweeted all over the place now. Um, two to six times risk of post-op pulmonary complications if you smoke. Then there's another one further down, which we'll skip over later, but it's all to do with if you give up for four weeks and eight weeks, your risk of post-op pulmonary complications and need for ventilation, everything drops quite significantly. And you will get the smokers who say, you know, excuse my French here, bloody hell, I gave up and uh, I've had the worst phlegm I've ever had in my life. Well, yeah, guys, that's because your mucociliary escalator is coming back to life and chucking all the crud up from the bottom of your lungs. So actually you get worse before you get better, which often stops many people from carrying on because they think they're worse. So that's a myth. So look after mucociliary escalators, stop smoking. You may have less of a risk of post-op pulmonary complications. Then we've got the lovely LJ Mottram, who I've not met. You have, John, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And she's a lovely person. <clears throat> she's so nice. And she's got so many relevant things to say. And she's probably one of the best presenters that I've seen in recent years. So, yeah, well worth seeing. If you ever get a chance to hear her talk, don't miss well, it. Well, I'd love to see her and love to meet her. Um She's also she doesn't have an unpleasant looking profile picture either. She's a she's a she's a pretty lady, but there we go. Am I allowed to say that? No, I've said it. You are allowed to say it, and indeed you are. Thank allowed. you very much. Oh, so anyway, uh, LJ Motch, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell her when I can. I see her. I work with her. <laughs> yeah, she's she, she's a very nice lady. Anyway, uh, experts anticipate, simplify, use judgment, improve, and teach. Now, she, from what I'm gathering, from what I'm following and seeing, did some very good sessions on ward rounds, how to teach, and all and all those sorts of things. Now, I think we've heard all this before uh, because people have made careers out of going around teaching this as they have out of human factors. And, you know, human factors, this, human factors, that. But she made some really good points and some lovely quotes came out from, from the sessions she delivered. And I wish I'd seen those. So maybe I'll look out for her in the future and undoubtedly we'll probably meet soon. But, uh, yeah, she was talking about teachers and what they're about. Um I think on another side as well, Johnny, she was also involved. I think she was also involved in the women intensive care. Yeah, I've seen some stuff about that as well. Yeah. Uh, now I had a chat with a lady, a very nice lady called Rosie Barua, mm -hmm. um, about this um, initiative, and I think it's this is a good place to mention it. It's an initiative by the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine to um, try and get the women in intensive care medicine together to um, help move them forward a little yeah. more. And I believe we're going to have a, a day's meeting in the near future. But if you go to the Intensive Care Society um, YouTube site or the Facebook page, you'll be able to see that interview I did with Rosie, which uh, she summarises beautifully some of the aims and objectives of that particular. Oh, group. we'll have a look on there because uh, Adrian Wong, myself and David have been having a very extensive chat about the fact that 
we certainly feel we need to support our colleagues, uh, our female colleagues, a hell of a lot more than they are being at times. And also, we were talking about ways to involve our female colleagues a hell of a lot more in certain things we're doing. But <clears throat> you'll be hearing more about that in due course, if I don't want to ruin anything for the time being. Um, moving on, all failing hearts are fluid responsive to some point. I love these sorts of statements, and this was made by Claire Colborne, who I used to work with in Liverpool. We did A&E together there. She's now at Oxford. So essentially, hell of a bold statement, because some people will undoubtedly say, hang on a minute, all failing hearts can have fluid thrown into them. No, I don't think that was her point. I think her point was, please give a fluid challenge to these guys. Once you've looked at the echo and had a look, you know you're not going to overdo it. So it seems like a sweeping bold statement, but it wasn't from the outset. So Claire Colborne, I would love to have seen her talks as well. But as you've just said, John, perhaps those echo sessions weren't attended as well as they could have been. I don't know. Um, mm. But she made an interesting point there. Then we're moving on to airway stuff. And David and Adrian and I have been talking about this again this morning. Uh, we've been talking about the difficult airway society, uh, the number of things they're putting out, the number of things they're perhaps not using social media for, etc., but this one's come up repeatedly about airways on ICU. And I do firmly believe that your nice controlled anaesthetic room environment with a nice ODP you're familiar with, possibly some trainees around you are very experienced. That's all well and good. And airway disasters happen in theatre. But believe you me, as we all know, the three of us, your sick patient on the receiving end of hypoxia, on the receiving end of a difficult airway you can't sort out, is an absolute nightmare. And ICU patients are very, very fraught with problems, which will all be made worse if you can't secure an airway. So it really is a risky place to be doing intubations, particularly out of hours if you're not lucky enough to have ODPs or experienced critical care practitioners with you. We're lucky we have ODPs with us, but 24-hour cover, not quite yet. Do you guys have ODPs on ICU? No. No. They are an absolute godsend, I can tell you now. Not that our nurses don't know what they're doing. They're just not as experienced as, obviously, uh, as ODPs are. And you really notice the difference. I think we've got a bit of luxury at Northampton General where we are because we've got three on during the day. So they come with us to arrest. They are with us for intubations. They're with us for perk trackies, bronx, everything. What a what a godsend! We don't really have ODP, we don't really have ODPs in Northern Ireland. We have them in one hospital here, and that's it. Uh, we have anaesthetic nurses who um, who have done a course and actually get trained, you know, to be an anaesthetic nurse, which is which is very 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 similar to being an ODP. But in in many slash most hospitals in Northern Ireland, we actually don't even have that. So okay. we don't have, we don't have, um, so most of the nurses who would, for example, in my hospital, whenever we do anaesthetics, it is a nurse who, you know, has just done anaesthetic side of things as, you know, and you know, could very easily be asked to do, you know, uh, to be the scrub nurse in the next case, Crikey. you know, and, and it moves around all the time. There's absolutely none of it and i i know because i've worked in hospitals which have odps and anesthetic nurses it, it, the the difference is is incredible yeah well i've just noticed i've put two of the same infogram on one with a mistake on the other one without so i'll delete that but anyway there we go two messages of the same thing because it was that important next one this was knitting actually he just said which i thought was lovely on one of his tweets no one comes out of hospital fitter than when they came in now, that's true it really has to be true think about it for every single patient unless I suppose somebody comes to clinic for something and they get a prescribed a medication, say for heart failure, and they improve, that's a bit different. But in the main, 
people who are coming into hospital tend to leave, particularly if they've been there for more than a week, worse off than when they came in for whatever reason. So he made that statement, so I thought I'd put that on. Um, another one, bit of a doom and gloom one really, but on ICU we should focus our conversations not on death but on future function. We obsess with mortality, we don't think enough about morbidity and what the patient is going to be like if they get off the unit. What I mean by that is frailty status and function. Could you lift a cup of tea to your mouth before you came to ITU? If you get treated by us and we escalate to the full max, are you going to be not able to lift that cup of tea and in fact not able to walk up the corridor or to use the toilet? These are big things that we obsess with mortality. You've got a 50-50 chance of surviving, etc. We need to focus more on morbidity and the American Association of Surgeons has got a lovely scoring system which is on our site which I think everyone should look at and indeed they should look at it for a major laparotomy patient for example because that's going to tell us what the rest of their life is effectively going to be like on prediction scoring. So a very important one. Um, I can't remember who this came from. It was one of the lovely ladies within the ICS. A girl without a plan is just a wish. Now I can't remember who. It was one of the social media faculty wrote this, John. I, I, I think, I suspect that was LJ actually. LJ Mottram. Yes, it was either LJ or, crikey, I'm so embarrassed, I can't remember her name. One of the other, she was, she's on the photo, very smiley, she's got a sort of got a blonde bobbed hair. <laughs> Rachel. Oh, Rachel, that's it. What's Rachel's surname? Moses. Rachel Moses. I think this may have come from Rachel, actually. Anyway. Yeah, it could well have done. She's Geordie, no one can understand a word she says, so we oh, get to write it down. Well, well, maybe I should have been there, Hinny. But there we go. Um, so I think that came from, from Rachel. So uh, that's a very nice statement. Now then, this is a good one. Shellfish allergy is not an iodine allergy. Now, how many times have you heard someone come in and go, I'm allergic to shellfish? Then the theatre staff are about to prep the patient. They go, oh, we can't use betadine then. No, don't stop that obsession, guys, because that would mean you're allergic to your own thyroid gland. That's ridiculous. If you're allergic to shellfish, you're not iodine allergic. I don't think anyone's truly iodine allergic, if I'm honest. So try not to mix those up. Have you heard this, Dave? No, never. But I think that, um, no, and in fact, we have had patients who are shellfish allergic recently and it just doesn't even get mentioned. Yeah, I think that's clearly somebody who's who's thought very in-depth about the absorption of iodine in shellfish and um, crustaceans <laughs> and gone, oh, they must be allergic to that. <clears throat> the other thing is that I suppose that um, it's really, it wouldn't really be the iodine they'd be allergic to. It's probably the constituents of whatever compound you're putting on them. But I don't think any of that is of, of relation to no. shellfish. Really. <clears throat> I think it's a load of cultures. Well, up to be honest, I did skip over one of Paul Young's slides because uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. Actually, I think I think we may have skipped over that one, but he made a comment about research, which was hilarious. But I'll come back to it. Um, half of everything we do is wrong. The problem is we don't know which half. Now, this was Simon Finfu. I've got a lot of time for. He's such a nice guy. He paraphrased Wanamaker on this one, so it is funny because this kind of um, uh, blended in with what Paul Young was saying about research. He was effectively saying, we're not really sure what we're doing. We just sort of get on with it and we get results. Now, it's so refreshing to hear some bigwigs in research and academics say this because it makes me feel like I'm a human being again um, because, you know, you can get a bit um, bamboozled by statistics, complexities. Uh, I've got 340 million papers published, but actually underneath some of these big brains as a human being. So it's lovely to hear people say this. Now, how do you feel about this kind of thing? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? 
Hello. Hello. Oh, you you disappeared there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I disappear? Sorry, the, the the actual interface cut out for a minute. So could you? Repeat? No, what I was saying was, do you, do you understand what I'm saying when I sort of say that actually some of these researchers they're just human beings oh, yes. at the end of the day, and it's lovely and oh, refreshing no. to hear it. Yes, I know. I abs- absolutely, and actually, quite a lot of discussion about researchers has you know, and and it was it was a real honour to meet you know, like some of them at IFAD and things like that and actually just meet them and go, God, you actually are just a normal person like us. And sometimes they're put up on a platform and, yeah. you know... Paul Marrick being you know, one. What a lovely guy. Yeah, like lovely guy. And like, um, you know, speaking about their topics. But actually, I think that's something that's becoming more and more real to me every year is that actually half the time at conferences, they're really just talking about their own ideas and their own, you know, yeah. ideas about what they do because they're actually the 50%... <laughs> Like you just said, of of stuff we don't know, uh, nobody knows. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, they're just talking about what lovely phrases coming out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Lovely. uh, Some of these people are just such lovely people to spend a bit of time with and talk to. And you know, initially you can be a little bit. uh, um, Oh, what's the phrase? You can get a bit shell shocked when you meet someone like this, but then crack that shell, and there's a lovely normal person underneath. So. Let's not label all researchers as being uh, people you can't talk to. Anyway, news two, coming to a hospital near you in December. Well, hopefully this is going to be a national early warning score that will be a bit more simple. Um, Shagan announced this, so I paraphrased that into a to an infogram there. But yeah, there is a new early warning score coming to all of our hospitals very soon. I believe, I think it is December, maybe January. Um... A slide here all about motivation. There's a lot about burnout going on, a lot about motivation and teamwork and stuff as well. Some people have a high motivation and can translate that into action, <clears throat> but others may need a nudge and also may need a space in between may need, noticed. So this is all about the fact you can try and motivate people. Some just won't be receptive to it, so some do need a bit of a nudge in a similar way that uh, people may need a nudge to start POCUS or... <clears throat> to start a new technique on the unit or to put a new bit of research into play. You know, not everyone's just going to agree to stuff. So I think you need to learn who your recipients are. So that was a great one that came through. And I think it may be Nitin Aurora again. He came up with some great ones, actually. Um, the next one was me, the nightmare ICU patient, not the complex one, but the one who ends up back within 24 hours. This is always a horrible thing to look at on your ICNARC figures. If you're seeing a high percentage of patients coming back within 24 hours, perhaps you're doing something wrong. So this is a message. Just be careful who you discharge a bit too early because you're very busy and you need some beds. I know we're, I'm not saying we all do this, but the worst patient is the one who comes back and you've made a mistake because they weren't well enough to get off the unit in the first place. Lots about noise. ICU doesn't follow circadian rhythm. It's always noisy, but you can make it quieter. Now, one of the simplest things is get some plastic bins. We've all seen those horrendous metallic bins. You know, you step on the pedal, chuck something into it, you walk off and the thing slams shut. It doesn't shut like a magnet kitchen that you've just had fitted shuts. It's It slams. And it is a horrendous racket for patients who are emerging from sedation, some who are delirious. You know, noise on ICU is a huge thing and everyone's trying to sort it all out by putting um, some of those... LED things on the ceiling that light up if somebody coughs, sneezes, shouts, or whatever it is. Half the time they're going off due to the monitoring. So they yeah. are noisy places. 
this is a big this is a big bugbear of mine. It was something that I did a project with um on the nurses on and we have an infograph on this as well. That's why I've I like, seen that it's a great I like, infograph. I also like melatonin as well. That's another debate entirely for ICU patients, but um, it is terrible. It is absolutely appalling. Yes. Like anyone who spent a time at night on an ICU know that it is just the noisiest place in the hospital. It is so loud, and um, the beep, the constant endless beeps, the bins going off, staff, yeah. um, because you know they're short staffing, they're shouting, having to. It's not their fault. They're having to shout across three bed spaces because they need somebody to bring them something because you know there's not enough rotating staff. I don't know how anyone you know can recover and i see it's just beyond me and i know that lj actually had had started projects in this back home here as as well in her icu and um using things like you know um earplugs eye masks and things like that they all really should be do they all should be done just as part and parcel of what's going on and it's just it's just not being done as standard i mean i remember the day where earplugs and face masks were handed out amongst our patients and i just thought what on earth is this is this a joke but actually very far from it this is so important for our patients nice quiet placid unit they're probably going to recover better certainly not get as much delirium and so forth post-traumatic stress and all these things if we're quieter so let's all try and pay a bit of attention to that guys um there is an organ donation survey, uh, which is very important. The ICS are plugging, so please do go and fill that out. There is a link on the infogram there you'll see. So please do that. It's very important. Uh, what does old mean to you? Now, uh, to my kids, old means me, probably. Um, but what does old mean to you? I mean, if you're aged 80 these days, is that old? I mean, how old do you have to be to for people to think, oh, too old or whatever it is? You've got to be very careful not to be ageist in any form of medicine that you practice. But some time ago, a colleague of mine did look at all of the over 80s on ICU and found the mortality was almost equal to the age. Now, that's a dreadful stat. Uh, obviously, heaps and heaps of co-founding variables there. We're not going to take that as research and stuff we should publicise. But age does have a bearing on recovery and it does have a bearing within various scoring systems. However, the population is getting older, the complexities of diseases are getting worse, um, so we're seeing more and more aged people on the unit. But it's just interesting to try and see what people categorise as, as old. And I think most people these days, if you say you're 65, well, that's not old anymore at all. Whereas 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that may have been considered to be a, towards the end of, the, of your life spectrum, but not, not nowadays. So just an interesting I suppose what age, um, I suppose whenever people talk about how old people are, I think what they mean is the age that normally flags up to them. I might look a bit more closely at yeah. this person's, you know, age-related comorbidities. And whenever you start talking about octogenarians, the, you know, 80 and above group, you know, you can be very surprised. You've got very fit people who are farmers and stuff, but that is the minority. And I oh, think yes. what people are talking about is you know, the age, the cutoff age where people are going, let's have a bit of a closer look on this. Whilst not being ageist, it's very important, like you say, but, um, and I think usually for me, I normally start to look a bit closer whenever it is. 
approaching very high age groups like the 80s and 90s. Or is it just when patients say, uh, oh, when the doctors, firemen and police are getting so young these days, is that is that the cutoff? If someone who's announcing that, maybe they're old. I don't know. Because oh, well, I used done. to hear that all the time. <laughs> <That's me. laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so let's not be I ageist. I say consultants all the time these days. Do you? Oh, you're getting so young, you lot. Oh, yes. <laughs> Doogie Hauser. Um, Surely contrast-induced nephropathy is a myth. Well, I think we've confirmed it probably is, so let's move on from that infogram. Um, Don't be smothered by guidelines or strangled by protocols. Now, it was Niles who said this while we're away. Do you remember, Dave, when you were running around like a blue-arse fly with a microphone and I was stood there doing nothing? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think Niles, Niels, Niles, whatever, however you pronounce his name. He he Mm. stated this, actually. Uh, and I thought it was lovely. So uh, we're often smothered or feel smothered by guidelines and protocols. And we all know, let's uh, let's be saints here, um, that they're, they're there for a reason. And the statements that were coming out of IFAD on this were certainly they're there for the skeleton crews and or people who have little experience with the way things run on your unit. They're there as a safety barrier. And I completely agree. They are. But let's, if we're going to have guidelines and protocols out there, Please to God, let's make them palatable and easy to follow, i.e. a lovely infogram from David Linus and me, um, whatever. But let's make it palatable. Um, <clears throat> for example, have a look at our fluid poster. I think that's made things so much easier for everybody. Uh, well, I hope it has at least. Um, that's the way I see guidelines and protocols. I don't want to see a 70-page document, the first 20 of which are the trust covering its back for someone who misquotes something in it. It's not important, guys, so let's just get the clarity out there and make it simple to follow. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, if you want to have a 70-page document, be prepared for it not to be read. I mean, that's the that's the bottom line of it. So if the trust want to have documents that are 70 pages long, fair enough, let them have it. But then have something that is palatable, They have an infogram that is attached to the protocol that they legally must have. But what's happening now is you're getting, you know, protocols that are in the middle of 70-page documents, like you say, that are black and white flow charts with tiny writing. And you're sort of looking them up at two in the morning going what on earth is this and who wrote it <laughs> you know it's, it is just unbelievable and actually most people what most actually most people are doing now is just going online and usually looking up things like the things that i have done or life in the fast lane or the bottom line where they sort of get a quick summary because having said that love you know it often gets you know, criticized you know infograms and surmised information will get criticized for not being in depth yeah. enough but to me that's what textbooks are for and you know at the end of the day you're making decisions and you're not looking up textbooks but you would look up an infogram that's the way i look at it absolutely agree and did you know john and dave more than 80 percent of icus in the uk take part in research well that was uh that was a nice stat i thought so i think we're all doing very well we're certainly active it should, at our be, it should be a hundred percent but that is a good <clears> status well <laughs> it should it should dave to be honest but uh, i thought 80 percent was a nice figure yeah hence yeah. put it on there um, I'm skipping down now because I don't want this to overrun too much, but uh, being a FICE lead means being a role model. It does. It's tough. Being a FICE lead says focus intensive care echo. If you're a FICE lead, there's quite a lot of work involved to get your trainees through and mentor them correctly. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of repetition in my infograms here. I think I need to edit this actually, guys. But, so apologies. But uh, it, it, when, I, when I do podcasts with John, it gives me a, a nice chance to really focus on what I've written, and sometimes I pick up mistakes. I've found a few here already, so apologies for that. Um, 
How does one measure sepsis? It varies by observer, by nation, by metric, by time point. Shagan pointed this out, whether it was his quote or not. Uh, but the definition of sepsis, how we're supposed to categorise it in the sepsis three, let's not go into it because crikey, we could go on all day about sepsis three and how to how to you know classify and identify the controversies involved and so forth. But I think uh, vigilance and common sense should come in. I think that's the bottom line on this, uh, essentially, because, you know, the vast majority of the acute medical take will fulfil the sepsis criteria, according to new guidance, apparently. Uh, another one on smoking um, and burnout here. The stronger person is the one who steps back and says enough. That was me. I didn't put myself down there, but that I've always said this to people because at one stage I'm going to put my hands out here. I went off work for a few months um, due to various things, but uh, it was due to quite a large amount of stress in my life and everything else. Uh, and I found it very difficult to actually say, right, I need to stop, I need to go for a bit, I need some time off. Um, but once I had, it was literally as if somebody had taken a massive biro and pressed a reset button on my back. And it was the best thing I ever did in my entire life. And I came back with a complete fresh outlook on things. So guys, if you do feel stressed, please talk to someone about it. Uh, and second... If you find you can't concentrate, you've got to think about the patients who are on the receiving end of this. Take yourself out, admit to it, step back, and then get yourself back when you're refreshed. I think that's such an important message. And also a very important one from Shagan because he's very, uh, very into burnout and so forth. And he will echo what I'm saying, I'm sure, on that one. So there we go. Nice little message for you from me. Very fluffy. Stop smoking. Again, another one. I2 intubation is a team sport. Another one about difficult airways and another one below there. Uh, another one about burnout, you'll see, um, are you thriving or surviving? Look after yourself as well as your patient. Another one from LJ, uh, we won't have a workforce so we don't look after them. So you're getting the themes of burnout and stuff, there's, there's, there's a lot on this at the moment. Now there's stuff on VAP, how do you um, diagnose VAP? Are you just making it up? But there are various criteria here which finally we seem to be getting some clarity on. So I put that in an infogram. 48 hours on the vent, new chest x-ray infiltrates, temp below 35 or above 38, purulent secretions and white count below 4 or above 11. I think the key to it is you're on a ventilator, so we don't want to hear someone's been diagnosed with VAP if they're actually breathing without a pipe down. <laughs> this is getting stupid, but I have heard this before. Uh, Viagra. Uh, 3,000 sildenafil, sildenafil, denafil, sorry, apologies. Vi look, Viagra. 3,000 prescriptions per annum in the UK for pulmonary hypertension. I would love to see what the prescription stats are for other conditions other than pulmonary hypertension. I'm sure it's well above 3,000. Does, does anyone use this on their unit? I thought I'd pause there for a joke, but uh, anyone using it on the unit for pulmonary hypertension? I haven't come across it in a while. I haven't seen um, it used, to be honest. Yeah, of course you haven't, gentlemen. There we go. David <laughs> and Jonathan have never seen Viagra used. Let's move on. Uh, Betaglottic V with a VL doesn't always mean an easier intubation. So, oh, God's sake, you can get... How many times have you looked at Twitter seeing everyone battling about VL versus... D I mean, seriously, guys, can we give it a break now? Just put a video down the airway. doesn't mean you can get the tube down more easily. Done. Anything to say, guys? About VL, DL? Yeah. It is literally the most ridiculous polarising argument. It is like It is like the people who argue about... 
you know, which is better, sucks or rock. It's just yeah. ridiculous arguments that never go anywhere mm. and are usually done by people. Is anyone feeling a John Hines approach to this at some meeting? I think one of us needs to get up with a microphone strapped to our face and do a John Hines approach on it. Bagsy, not me, but uh, there we go. I think it's one that we're all... Can we put it to bed for a little while? Look, we can all look at airways. We, as long as you get the tube down, is that is there any other issue? No. Not really. No. There we go. Now, uh, ward rounds and teaching. <clears throat> Who was taught to do ward round? I wasn't. Dave? And I was not. Teaching no, absolutely not. The furthest thing from the truth. I didn't even know what went on in the ward round until I'd finished medical school, basically. You know, it's isn't, just, isn't, and we, yeah, it's ridiculous. Isn't yeah. this the root of everything we do? Surely, surely. But we're not taught this. John, when you were doing your training to become a critical care practitioner, did you get any information or training or direction on the ward round at all? No. Well, I think this is terrible, isn't it? So yeah. again, do you know what the problem is, though. Do you know what the problem is? The, <clears> the problem is, it's a that that's a drip down approach. There are people who lead ward rounds, and they need to lead ward rounds. So I know the Royal College of Physicians years ago tried to make the ward round checklist, which went down like a lead balloon amongst physicians, because you know it, it's so variable. People just walk around, and the old style physician just walks around and nods approvingly or disapprovingly at, at things that are said and. That is what I remember a lot of ward rounds being like. And in fairness, I see it as different because you can ward round the place to death. But I mean, you know, it's not, you know, generally it is not structured in in a checklist sort of way or... And it, but particularly in medical wards, like all this stuff about discharge planning, about planning going forward, about making sure fluids are prescribed for 24 hours, making sure insulin's on it, reviewing anticoagulants like that is. I mean, if there is a if there's a ward that's doing that, please let me know, because I would like to shake your hand and praise you. But I just don't see that being done on a daily basis. No, and I think uh, we've got a collaborative uh, yeah. project on the way about ward rounds and checklists on ward rounds and stuff. So keep your yeah. eyes peeled. I mean, to, um, to me, the, mo- the, mo- the more important thing about ward rounds at the moment is that they are multidisciplinary and they're inclusive if you can do those two things then i think you've got the starting of a very good ward round i think you have and i think inclusion as john john you and i have talked about dietitians and physios many times on the podcast getting them involved in the ward round is great because you get a different angle on everything now we have an mdt once a week on itu and we get our dietitians in we get our speech and language therapists in physios ot's all sorts of people they are so valuable, and that, that and this moves nicely on to the next info grand down. Don't forget, it's not just doctors who make weaning plans, but plans in general. Don't forget your allied health professionals, because they're legends. Um, so hats off to critical care practitioners, nurse practitioners, physios, OTs, you know, dietitians, everybody, because they make such a huge difference to the patient journey and are so important. Uh, withdrawal of care and ITU should always be a team decision. Don't bear the burden alone. You know, you'll get consultants who just say, right, we're sealing in care there, let's withdraw, blah, blah. You you really should check with your colleagues and get a second opinion, if not third. Uh, And indeed, perhaps involve the parent's specialty in this as well, because it's not just us, it's not just our patient. So let's think about that. Uh, A slide down in support of uh, our lovely female colleagues who are amazing on ICU and in medicine in general. Uh, I think the culture needs to move on and we need to engender change on that one. Uh, And adding life to your years, not just adding years to your life. So we need to think about how far we're pushing our patients on the unit and the ages they are and the morbidity. And then another one on guidelines. Now, I will say uh, thanks for this, both of you, because it's going to make me edit this post because I've put several uh, duplications in. I apologise for that. Uh, so So I'll get on with that. 
that's my Infogram section. And just very briefly, and then I'll let you guys say something because I've collaborated now with Aoife and I feel very lucky to have done so. So has Dave. I think the three of us hopefully have got some plans afoot for the future. Yeah. Yeah, so I featured all of her infographs and her notes because I think they're just so good. Clear to the point and you can look at one of them and you know it you remember the stuff because it's just so visually pleasing so i have put everything she's she's given me permission and sent me all of these to put on and and to put down and i've actually got a section on on my site now which is dedicated to Aoife. she's like on a pedestal now <laughs> but i put all of her stuff out. so is dave and so are you john but um there is a section now on the site where you can see all of her uh, her lovely notes and I just thought I'd feature all the, the work she's done um, at State of the Art to bring us some clarity. So thank you so much to Aoife. I'm not going to go on about the rest because it's all clips from Twitter and stuff. Please go on to David's site at propathology.com because even before I could get mine out, he'd done it already. He's, a, he's an absolute wizard. So he'd managed to get all the stuff out onto his site. So do go to propathology.com uh, and have a look. And that, that's all I want to say because I've rabbited to the point where my vocal cords are almost close. So I'll need a VL or DL doing shortly. I'll volunteer for that. <laughs> you do neither, actually. You'll just use some form of shoehorn to do it. Just, you put it That's exactly what it is, a heel. A heel, thank you. Thank you very much. David, anything else to say about a state-of-the-art from your angle? Um. Yeah, I I like um I I I just love conferences. I love I love getting new information out, and um I love the dissemination of information across the world. And I I I, I commend all conferences such as uh, State of the Art for really embracing a homemade social media strategy. I think there is so much more to be done on it, and you will hear more about this from you know people like Johnny and myself and the team. That are coming together to do a couple of exciting projects next year um but it really is at odds with some of the other which we'll not really mention but um some of the other conferences which happened in december just had absolutely no dissemination of information and we're actually unable to do podcasts on them because we don't really know what went on at them which is really uh it's quite disgraceful in this day and age so let's encourage people to actually sort of get on the bandwagon and disseminate information so that we can talk about it and have these conversations yeah Agreed, agreed. John, anything to say about State of the Art? Because in fairness to you, you were physically there. We weren't. Um, yeah, I mean, I was physically there. I wasn't tweeting very much because I was hidden away in a back room doing live streaming stuff. So I managed to get um, a few interviews live streamed across Periscope, Facebook and YouTube. And they're all available now on the Facebook page and the YouTube page for anybody to watch, should they wish to, from various clinicians being interviewed by various clinicians, not just by me. Um, We had a very good um, team of... um, uh, social media people, um, led by the very capable Steve Mathieu, um, who um, is going to go on to uh, lead the organisation of next year's conference. And for those of you that don't know, it's back in London next year. Uh, I've got... uh, it's not at the Excel, is it? No, it's not at the Excel. You'll be glad to hear it. It's, it's the, the QE2, which I believe is just opposite Westminster. So, uh, Oh, very good. I'm glad. Uh, yeah. and, a nicer venue. The year after that, we're coming to Birmingham. So that means that I don't have oh, to travel. Oh, brilliant. That's nice and close for us then. Yeah, absolutely. That's very good. Um, and I believe even the year after that has been announced, but um, I can't remember, so I won't speculate. Um, but I, it was a very, very good conference. Um, the venue was absolutely super. Um, it was the ACC Centre in Liverpool, which is right on the, the edge of the river. 
um, and very close to the centre of Liverpool itself. I think that was one of the big drawbacks of the XL, that to actually get anywhere exciting in London, you had to get a tube. And it really was in the arsehole of London, if we're quite frank. Um, and as a consequence, Liverpool just felt it had a lot more vibe. I mean, for example, um, on the, the the second night, the Kasabian were doing a concert in the venue just next door. So the whole place had a bit, bit of a, a buzz about it. Um, the, um, the facilities there were absolutely wonderful. Um, the layout was brilliant. One thing that I would like to mention um, on the podcast itself is the stuff done by Mark uh, Forrest um, with his ATAC stuff. He did a fantastic simulation suite down at the bottom, uh, which used kind of state-of-the-art stuff and uh, took people through simulations of various things, patients from ambulances into wards, then onto intensive care, and then um, able to take families and relatives into rooms, all played by actors, to have discussions. So it was, it was, it was a great conference. It felt really, really good. It felt really nice not to be in the XL. Uh, yeah. And I'm hoping that with some of the um, social media, the live streaming, etc., and we've got some good ideas for next year as well. Um, I think it's going to go up another level next year, um, and we're possibly looking for other team members to play their part. I'll leave that with you. Um, but we are definitely improving year on year. I first started as part of the social media team two years ago, um, and it wasn't so well organised. It was in a centre that is not so fit for purpose um, but I think I think the biggest shout out has to go to Ganesh who has been the organiser he's going to be the president of the ICS now he's been the organiser he's he's just been phenomenal he's had a very open mind he's changed the way the conference has performed he's changed the way that we interact with each other he's bought in AHPs, you've got dietitians, you've got physios, you've got occupational therapists, you've got nurses, critical care practitioners. And it's just such an open, broad conference um, that just has a lovely, lovely buzz about it. And if there's one conference I wouldn't want to miss every year, it would be the ICS. Even SMAC, which I went to in um, June of this year, it does have a fabulous feel to it. Um, but I, I think value for money wise for me the ics offers more um and um i would highly highly recommend it we did have a bigger audience this year as well year on year for the last three years we've grown the number of people coming um, and we anticipate that to continue so um well there you go a testament to the organizing committee the social media uh crew that were there and uh, yeah i was very gutted to miss it because it was uh, it was in the city I trained in and lived in for a number of years, so I was really upset I couldn't make it, but there we go. Um, and uh, my wife still hasn't had the baby, so I could have gone. Oh, there you my go. God, what is she doing? <clears throat> oh, <laughs> OMG, indeed. She is still harbouring the Wilkinson child. Maybe it's there Jesus she's got inside her, and we're just waiting for another couple of weeks. Well, actually, funnily enough, the kids have said, well, one of the, the, the youngest said, uh, why don't you call it Elvis? And I thought, mm, yeah, not a great option. And the other one said, what about Jesus? I thought, Elvis it is. <laughs> there we go. So let's, let's just, um, and I'm aware that we've run to an hour already, so I don't want to go on for too no, much longer. What did we say? We said it would be under 45 minutes, yeah, but, you know, there's so much close. to talk about. Um, I wanted to talk about these exciting projects that you keep mentioning. Is this something we can discuss now, or is it still under your hat for the time uh, being? I think we can, Dave, can't we? I mean, there are so many things going on since we got together at IFAD. Uh, have we casted since IFAD? I think we have, haven't we, John? We yeah, did we the did. Last one. Um, David and I have kept in touch uh, very regularly. We've collaborated with our sites. We've brought Aoife in now as well. 
which is great. Um, I think, Dave, do you want to just briefly mention what we perhaps discussed this morning? Yeah, so there, so we have a group of people who have come together as, um, as members of a of an expanded social media team. People who are very active on social media, actual people who are on social media, not just, you know, the people that hospitals sometimes turn around to and go, mm-hmm. you use Twitter sometimes. You know, actual people who are involved in the um, creation and. You know, curation of material online uh, for the um, medical market at large, um, and actually getting together and talking about what, what, why do people go to conferences? And this is one of the projects we're doing. We're looking at why people go to conferences, what, what attracts people to it, what turns people off from conferences, and how we can harness the bits that we like, the bits that we like, particularly with reference to social media. Um, to sort of potentially look at um, doing more virtual style conferences and engaging more people online from a wider audience across the world um, and engaging FOMED to make it a lot more, um, to make conferences a lot more accessible mm. to people and actually having a proper social media strategy. I love the, the strategizing of social media. I love the, the campaigns, the the graphic campaigns we do Um for different conferences that I've been involved in and um, really trying to take that forward. Isn't, isn't that about right, uh, Johnny? Yeah, it is, it is. And uh, <clears throat> so initially it's been Adrian, myself and David, we're forming the group. And funnily enough, Jonathan, now that we're on here, you're on the invite list, you will be receiving a, uh, a WhatsApp later. Can you respond? Because we're forming this group. We're going to have a meeting in the next, it'll be a few months away yet, but we're all going to get together and there's a lot of exciting plans afoot. So I'm not going to say much more than that, but but you're invited. So we'd like you to have you on board if, if, if you're willing to do so. That is a new I'm thing. Sure, I'm sure um, that's more than possible. That sounds really exciting, Johnny, especially the way you've just summarised it. David, that's right up my alley because I've had a big problem recently. I was only speculating two or three years ago that a virtual conference is something we should be aiming for or we should certainly be offering at a conference a virtual element to that conference so that you can attend some of it virtually and I don't see any issue with that and I think really it's about it's it's one of the reasons I did the live streaming from the um, intensive care conference it wasn't about getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to view it was about getting some people to view which will um, promote the conference over the next few years and actually the 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 videos that I did I looked at it the other day 6,000 views so far Crikey, that's, yeah, that's uh, I mean, it just goes to show. It just goes to show. I think so. The I think the plans that we're making for uh, any virtual conferences going ahead would 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 be a bit of an independent event for FOMED and be solely delivered on, on the internet because absolutely conferences should expand, like existing land-based conferences should expand to, you know, incorporate um, virtual elements to their conference. We we tried it at, at IFAD and it worked very well. It's just. Um, there's an enormous repository of people across the world who, if you don't have to travel, you don't have to do a plane, you don't have to get a hotel, uh, you can attract so many people to talk about something and also get it out there to million, potentially millions of people and record it for posterity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually, and it is really about, and as Johnny and I have talked about in many other podcasts, about the democratisation of medical education and the free open access part of it and trying to get it out uh, to as many people as possible um, so it doesn't seem 
seem like an old boys club so it doesn't seem like the thing you go whenever you're trying to rack up cv points and cpd mm. points even though that's important and mm. um, it's going to be hopefully fresh and free of all the potential institutional biases that litter conferences a- across the world absolutely <clears throat> so there we go so yeah and a few other projects in mind uh, but we'll keep you pipped on that one and uh next uh, critical care practitioner podcast with me and the phone med trawling hopefully soon john i'll get one of those out soon. yeah definitely i do want to quickly before we go and uh, I, like i said i don't want to talk too much more but i do want to talk to um david about the new project the propophology podcast now i know that there's been a few episodes released already because i've just been madly tweeting some of them as we've been talking um so um, for instance the latest one is personal learning networks get involved dave linus and kian mcdermott now i know johnny always has a problem with kian's first name so i'm hoping he's mastered it by now oh no i haven't yeah he's, he's such a great guy yeah, Kian. absolutely nice chap i met him at smack he, he came made over came over and made a point of saying hello um, and i always know people are nice when they make the effort to do that so um, it's interesting um, what's what's the philosophy behind the podcast then uh, david is there a philosophy or are you just going to wing it for a little while like i did and see where it takes you Oh, it's totally winged. No, um, <laughs> it does have a bit more. <laughs> it does have a bit more of a charge to that. So essentially, I, whenever I went to IFAD, um, I was really introduced to podcasts by people like yourself and um, people like Kean, who were who, who you know who were talking about them, and I didn't actually realise how large they were because I normally focus on infographic creation video creation um and actually do tutorials and things like that on youtube so this was another avenue and realized whenever i got back that i had quite a few messages in my inbox saying i'd like to do podcasts with you because of the stuff we were doing and i realized that one i already had the equipment to do it because of the videos and two um I actually end up starting listening to them and going, this is a really good format to get information out there and people listen to it. So that was one of the reasons behind it. So um, it's supposed to talk about, I suppose what I want to talk about within the podcast are the topics that are of interest. Well, mainly to me, it's very biased. So it's all things that I'm interested in, which are pertaining to the propophology um, sort of mantra, which is the FOMED in critical care, anesthesia and pain medicine. So it's very wide. Um, however, I think that people who work in those environments have a pretty wide job definition half the time. So most of the stuff will be um, interesting to him. And the stuff we've done recently, I interviewed um, Juan Pablo Gonzalez, who is the clinical director of uh, emergency medicine and ICU in Chile. And it was one of the most interesting podcasts I've done because it was supposed to be on very specific things in telemedicine and stuff like that. And it actually ended up you know, being about what happens in Chile in emergency medicine, it was fascinating mm. just hearing about all those things. And, and you know, um, David, really that's one of the, the that, to me that's one of the biggest strengths of podcasting that the the network you start to build up and the people that you get to talk to that you otherwise wouldn't talk to have just proved absolutely invaluable to me. I wouldn't be doing half the things I'm doing now if it weren't for the podcast that I started for three and a half years ago. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so important and it's really actually invigorating as well. And it's really ins- inspirational because it actually you know, drives other projects and drives um, different things. And I was talking to Kane McDermott at IFAD about personal learning networks. It really triggered something off within me because it was actually just, you know, theorizing or conceptualizing something that we already do. Mm-hmm. We've already got a personal learning network. We're all on Twitter. We follow people we like on Twitter and we create that personal learning network. But it was actually just um, talking about the actual ins and outs of it and how to, how to do it better and you know how to you know trim your 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 um twitter you know um profile into making it a much more professional sort of um, environment 
It was actually really interesting, and he is such a lovely guy that he, he was a pleasure to sort of talk to about it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to leave it there, chaps. Um, I think we've said enough. Um, thank you, David and Johnny, um, for talking us through a huge amount of valuable stuff from the Intensive Care Society State of the Art. Uh, conference in 2017 um, I probably banged on enough about it I look forward to seeing you all there in 2018 back down in London in a nicer part of London Absolutely. Um, so I'll leave it there um, if I don't speak to any of you in my audience before Christmas or if you don't manage to catch me I hope you have a very happy Christmas we've got some snow lying on the ground here we get very excited over here in the UK if we get more than two to three inches of snow and we've got that now um, we'll have it probably for about 24 48 hours and then we'll all st- start complaining about the wet and the cold and the slush so that's to come yet um but have a happy christmas everybody happy holidays to my american friends i think that's what you say to each other isn't it but um and happy happy christmas and a new year to anybody else um out there listening to me right now yeah likewise from uh, from us as well okay yes yeah, so it's from johnny and me and david so uh johnny it's good night from me it's good night from him good night You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>